couple of pastoral situations. Keep your hand up if you want a Bible. They'll bring it to you. Tell me about Timothy and Glenda. Timothy uh, found himself once more praying desperately. Please forgive me and set me free. He prayed this prayer so many times and yet found himself back in guilt and despair, needing to repent again. It seemed that his lust was more powerful than all the different ways he had determined to beat it. The previous week, he'd made a solemn determination. In his diary, he wrote two words, never again. And he wrote a date next to it. And he imagined a day when he could look back and see with satisfaction that his struggle uh, was history. But it didn't last long. It didn't work. Glenda was aware that her speech kept turning bitter with frustration. She would sometimes wake up uh, just in a foul mood. And there were so many frustrations in her life. And so sharp words quickly came flying out of her lips to the people around her. She determined once that she was going to count to five before making any responses. And when she tried really, really hard, she did manage to be a bit more polite and civil to people. But when she was tired, those bitter words would just keep flying out of her mouth. She knew she knew it wasn't a good witness to a Christian faith, but she couldn't seem to resist her mouth opening up and saying things that she would later just deeply regret. Well, what does God have to say uh, to Timothy and Glenda? What does God have to say to us? Well, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. You'll find this on page 1132 in the church Bibles. Romans chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to take the time to read it now. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin 
once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's word. And it's very good news. God's grace is so scandalous. We're kind of so used to singing about it that we forget what a scandal it is to the ears of morally serious people. In the hymn, To God Be the Glory, we sing this line, The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Sometimes uh, when the old man rises up and we're singing that hymn, I turn to the stranger next to me, I put my hand on his shoulder and I look meaningfully into his eyes. We sing, The Vilest Offender. Just, just to test their humility, but that's a, that's a nonsense. Um, in this letter to Christians in Rome in the first century, the Apostle Paul has been teaching the gospel of God. He, he's made it abundantly plain that the only way we can be right with God, justified, that's what the word means, is through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, God saves us by grace, not by our law-keeping, our rule-keeping, our works. Uh, it's not our moral achievements that saves us. It's Christ who saves us by His amazing grace. And He's been explaining the wonderful blessings uh, for the justified believer from chapter 5 onwards. But at this point in the letter, He turns to address some of the common objections that he must have heard as he, as he went about preaching the gospel. And the truth is, if we share the gospel message as it's written in the Bible, I think we will face very similar reactions as people find this news of God's grace just a bit too scandalous. Are you telling me that a moral person who dies without Jesus is lost forever? But the worst criminal in history dies a repentant person trusting in Jesus and is saved. Is that what you're telling me? Trevor Wax, in his uh, blog, he gives, it, gave, gives this illustration. Consider the example of Jeffrey Dahmer, a notorious serial killer who murdered and dismembered 17 men and boys. His crimes are the most horrifying things you can imagine. They, they defy comprehension. He was captured in 91 and imprisoned. He died in 94 when a fellow inmate beat him to death. But before he died, when he was in prison, it is said he repented of his sinful past and put his faith in Christ. Could it be possible 
that Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the most evil men to ever live, was granted eternal life? And could it be possible that a sweet old lady who, who never trusts in Christ would face judgment? I mean, that is the radical and scandalous message of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Now, the Apostle Paul, who, who traveled around preaching, uh, he'd heard these objections to this message of God's grace. Uh, often they were raised in crafty questions, and I think that's what we've got in chapter 6, verse 1. Look at the verse, first verse again. What shall we say then? And then you can hear perhaps one of the objections. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul can hear the objector. He must have heard them many times say, well, Paul, I like what you said a moment ago back in chapter 5. As uh, sin increased, grace increased all the more. Well, being as my sin uh, reveals God's amazing grace, does that mean I should remain in my sinful way of life so that, so that God's grace can be shown all the more glorious and greater by how he keeps forgiving me for my sinful choices? I think this is, the, uh, this is probably not uh, a serious question. It's a crafty question uh, of this morally serious person who just wants to show, look, your gospel of grace uh, is absurd. It doesn't work. It's going to promote sin and immorality. I mean, what's to stop such a person continuing to do sinful things? What's to stop an immoral person thinking, well, this gospel like is a ticket. I've got my ticket to heaven. I'll put it in my back pocket and I can sin all I want and then I show my ticket at heaven's door and I'll be fine. Is that right? Does God's grace promote um, sinful, immoral living? Does it give license to do evil things? What's Paul's answer? Well, it's there in verse 2. Of course not. By no means. But why not? Why doesn't it? What has this objector not understood about God's grace? Well, the profound and short answer is there in verse 2. Have a look at it again. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it? any longer we've died to sin now what does that mean uh, is it saying that Christians real Christians are immune from temptation uh, no longer capable of sinning because we're dead to it you know dead things don't respond to anything is that what it's saying is that what Paul means it's not the experience of Timothy or Glenda, it's not my experience. And Paul writes elsewhere in this letter of the conflict experienced by the Christian because of the sinful temptations that battle uh, against the desire to please God. The work of the Spirit and the work of our flesh, it describes. And so I don't think it means that we are immune from temptation. So, so what does it mean when it says that we have died to sin? Well, he unpacks it for us in verses 2 to 11. 
And we're going to dig in there and see his argument. And then he applies it in verses 12 to 14. That's what we've got going on in these Bible verses today. So let's unpack uh, this theology uh, of what is true for the Christian. And really the big concept that he's getting across is this. We who are Christians have been united to Christ. When we repent and turn from our sin, we become united with Jesus. And that changes everything. You see, often when we struggle with, uh, to make changes in our life, when we, when we struggle with sin, we often think, well, I, I, I need to um, uh, do some activity that's going to change me. I need to come up with lots of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations, maybe a new set of spiritual disciplines. Uh, that's going to fix me. I'll be able to fix this problem. But firstly, we must understand about what God has done for us in Jesus. If I can summarize verses 11, uh, 2 to 11, it's this. That all Christians have died to sin because we are united to Christ. Look at verse 5. If we have been united with him. This is the phrase. Now I think we can struggle to wrap our heads around this idea of being united with Christ. So let me give you a few analogies. Uh, becoming a Christian is not like getting a ticket from Jesus that you stick in your back pocket and you show at the pearly gates at the end to get your admission. Becoming a Christian is about uniting your life with Jesus. So instead of receiving a ticket, it is actually that Jesus is the airplane that you need to get into in order to get to the destination of heaven. We returned back from the U.S. on Monday. And if our children wanted to know whether we got back safely, uh, all they needed to know was this. Did we get on the plane in Raleigh-Durham International Airport? And secondly, did the plane arrive? For we united our lives, our very existence, and our future to this tin can with wings. And basically, wherever the plane went from that point on, we went. The lady showed us how to do the emergency door, but I don't think you can do it mid-flight. We had very little control once we got into that tin can. We can't get across the Atlantic in our own strength. I couldn't swim it. I don't think anyone's done it. Uh, we needed to rely on the strength, the power, the resources of the Boeing plane and the, and the engines that, that powered us over the sea. That's being united to the plane. Or another analogy for being united with Christ, maybe um, a, a gardening image, you know. Sometimes you can take a cutting from a, one plant. I know vine growers do this. And, and you can graft it onto another plant, another vine. So now that, that little shoot is relying uh, on the host plant. All its sustenance, all its resources, it's attached to a new root system. That's what it means to be united to Christ. So we've got another analogy, uh, that of, a, of marriage. Uh, being united with Christ is like marriage. I mean, think back uh, the day when Kate Middleton uh, walked up the aisle and met uh, Prince William. And uh, there was a ceremony where forever they united their lives together. And suddenly she became the Duchess of Cambridge. Um, everything that belonged to him now belonged to her. You know, the tiaras, the houses, all the press intrusion. 
you know, good luck to that. You know, wouldn't want it myself. And everything that she was and had belonged to him. They united together. Her, her story was his story and vice versa. They shared each other's past and their futures together. The great picture of union with Christ, of course, is baptism. And that's what he turns to in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He reminds them, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I think it's impossible for a Baptist pastor to uh, not make a side point at this point. Notice the assumptions. Notice the assumptions. He's writing to Christians in Rome, although he had not yet visited Rome. And the basic assumption is this. If he's addressing Christians, he's talking to people who've been, have, have been baptized by water. There's no doubt it is. If John Stott, the Anglican, says it's water, it's water, right? And in the book of Acts... Uh, we see that people believed in the gospel of Jesus, and when it was clear, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, for these adults, there wasn't a gap between believing and being baptized in water in the name of Jesus. This was the first step. So if you haven't done it yet, and you say you're a Christian, go to Connect Corner. We'd love to sort you out. Not a problem. So don't you know, Paul says. He reminds them of their baptism. Remember your baptism? Remember what happened at your baptism? It was a funeral. Do you remember your baptism was a funeral? All of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. See, water baptism is an, an outward enactment of this spiritual reality. The life of the Christian is split into two eras, B.C. and A.D. The old life before Christ, where I kind of lived for myself and pursued my own desires and what I wanted to live, that, that's my old life. But since when I come to Christ, first thing we've got to do is we've got to bury the old life. That's what happens. And that's what the baptism symbolizes. We, we basically have a funeral service for the old person. They get buried, put under, it's dead, buried. The burial doesn't last long. We always assure people of this. It doesn't last long on the surface. And then basically we bring them out into their new life, which is A.D., Anno Domini. They live their lives in the year of the Lord. They live their lives under service of King Jesus in his resurrection life. His death is our death. His burial is our burial. In order that verse 4, look at verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. My new life is now identified under the rule and the authority of King Jesus and all his marvelous grace. That's the new life. Now here's the verse I've been sharing with people this week. Uh, some of our brothers and sisters struggling in hospital. I've asked them to tell me about when they were baptized and what they remember of it. And then I reminded them of verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, and the truth is, if you trust in Christ and be baptized, you have, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the certainty. 
The baptism is a reminder to you of the spiritual reality. You have died with him and you will be raised with him. So not longer, so not only do we start a new life from the moment we trust and believe and are living in the resurrection life of Jesus, but one day when he returns, or if we die, well, either he's gonna be well when he returns, either way, whether you're gonna die before or not, we're gonna be raised to resurrection life, have a resurrection body like his. That's the big concept we've got to wrap our heads around, this union with Christ, because he then applies that specifically to how it affects our relationship with sin in verses 6 to 11. Up to now in Romans, we've seen that sin is not simply uh, the wrong things we do, but it's like a slave master. It's an enslaving power over us. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 9 says this, For we are all under the power of sin. Second half of chapter 5, we we saw that this is true of all of Adam's descendants, that since Adam's sin, sin reigns over us, enslaving all of us. Its influence carries on all the way until until it delivers the final wages to us of death. The wages of sin is death. We're going to see next time we dip into Romans To be human from Adam onwards is to be subject to sin. The greed, the lust, the anger, the deceit, the self-asserting pride that so easily springs from our hearts in our thoughts, in our words, and actions that cause havoc in our relationships is because of this. Sin is ruling over us. And as verse 6 puts it, the old self is ruled by sin. We are slaves to sin. But here's the wonderful impact of being united with Christ. Uh, the, the ultimate thing that sin can do to us is deliver the penalty of death, and after that, it can't do anything to us. So what's happened? Well, look at the death of Christ. Look at verse 6. For we know that our old self, the BC life, was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. And that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The point is, is that having died with Christ, sin has no more authority or power over my life. And because we are united with Christ, his death was our death, if we're trusting Christ. Our old life, ruled over by sin, was crucified with Christ. If you remember that picture of marriage, what did we bring to this marriage with Christ? Well, we brought our sin, our guilt, our shame. And Christ, amazing mercy and grace, united himself with us so that he took our penalty. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took our sin on himself. And there's a sense in which I can say this. I was punished on the cross in Christ. My penalty was paid. I died in his death. But something else has happened. It's not merely my pardon. But his death means my emancipation. Um, I am now 
freed from the slave-driving, bullying power of sin over my life. It no longer has authority over my life because once you're dead, it can do nothing to you. It has no authority over you. And the wonderful thing that is now true of us, united to Christ, is not only that I died with him, but I have new life with him. The resurrection life of Christ is at work within me. Look at verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves. See, what is true for Christ in his resurrection life is now true for us, for we are united to Christ. United now in his resurrection power to be free from sin and free and empowered to serve God. Christopher Ashe puts it this way, Before being joined to Christ, when I resisted sin, I was like a prisoner who tries to escape over the prison wall before his sentence is paid. When sin the jailer catches up with me and tells me to come back to prison, I have no choice but to go because I'm guilty and the penalty is not paid. But when the Christian resists sin, he's like a prisoner who's released through the prison gate after serving his sentence. When the jailer threatens him and tells him to return to prison, he needs not go. The penalty is paid. The only power of sin now is, to, is the power to bluff us. And this is the objective truth about the Christian believer. We are united with Christ. The penalty of sin is paid and the power of sin is broken. It no longer rules over us. Tim Chester puts it this way. Telling a slave to be free is to add insult to injury. Telling a liberated slave to be free is an invitation to enjoy new freedom and privileges. And so there's the first application, and it's to our minds in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a command to see ourselves truly as we are in Christ. Think back to the story of Timothy at the beginning. Timothy keeps praying that God would set him free. But the truth is that he has already been set free. Uh, Tim Chester uses this analogy. The Christian can often be like the freed slave who out of instinct still jumps at his old master's voice. Or we're like the man with the healed leg who still limps out of habit, even though his leg is perfectly fine. Or like the former prisoner who still wakes at prison hours. Some of you woke up at 6 o'clock this morning, even though you set the alarm for 7 o'clock because the hour changed. You still woke up. It's your habit. My wife forgot to change the alarm. I had an extra hour with her today. It was wonderful, obviously. Sin makes demands on us, but it has no authority over us 
if we're in Christ. And the first step is to remind ourselves of what is true when sin makes its demands. Hang on. I've died to sin. How can I live in it any longer? No longer do I have to obey sin's voice. I'm now free to serve and please and live God, live for God. So we've got to start seeing ourselves for what we truly are. And we've got to remind ourselves that this is true. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Does grace motivate us to remain in sinful ways? No, of course not. By no means. See, grace doesn't merely forgive my sins. It delivers me from the power of sinning. For now I am united to Christ. And we need to remind ourselves of this. What's the application in terms of actions? Well, it's there in verses 12 to 14. Now we're freed from slavery to sin. Freely offer yourselves to God. That's the application. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. You see, having been freed from slavery, we've got the power to say no. Sin would love to con us, um, but we're no longer ruled by sin. We've come under the reign of Christ and the freedom of grace. And so actually, when I do sin, I know I have a father I can turn to who delights to show me grace and forgive my sin. But I know that the grace has not only pardoned me, but also is there to emancipate me and free me and enable me to live and choose to offer my body not to sin, but to righteousness. And every day we have decisions and choices to make. Before you had to get out of bed tomorrow, remind yourself, body, what am I going to offer myself to today? Am I going to offer myself to God or to sin? Look at verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Uh, you know, here's a body. It can be an instrument of wickedness. Do I want to do that? He's saying, well, no, not if you're a Christian. Do not offer any parts of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. This is what Glenda needs to remember. She does not need to sin. She doesn't need to sin with her words. United to Christ and his resurrection life, she can choose to use her words to build others up and to be kind rather than to tear people down. She can use her words in service to God. We can offer up our minds to, to think and reason in the service of God. We can offer our feet to take us to places where we can serve God. We can offer our eyes so that our ambitions and our desires are to serve God. We can offer our hands and choose to make a difference in the world for the glory of God. We can use our love, showing friendship to others as a service to God. We can use our sex drive in service to God. We can use our money to serve God. 
God, all because we are united to Christ. So how are you going to use your body for the rest of today? How are you going to use your body tomorrow morning when you wake up? Who will you choose to serve? Are there parts of yourself that actually you've not given over in service to God? I wonder, is there something coming to your mind? Remember, the death Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Can I ask you to bow your heads and have some moment? for personal reflection response. Perhaps it's repentance, but I would encourage you to, to offer up thanksgiving for what he's done in uniting you to Christ. And why don't you take that one thing you're thinking about and offer that thing now up to God rather than wickedness for this week ahead. Let's have a moment of silence and reflection.